you know, our culture throws around the word hero a little too much. Just because someone can recite a few lines, because someone can throw a football, because someone has a face that the culture determines as beautiful, we kind of throw that term around. They're my hero. And sometimes in doing that and getting lost in that world of red carpets and parties and social scenes and television and news and getting in the midst of that, we lose sight of people that are real heroes, people that actually do things that are heroic. Now, I was thinking this week about particularly those people that in some way or another sacrifice of themselves in order to bring relief to somebody else. I started thinking about great rescue stories. When I was growing up, there was a story that some of you may be familiar with. How many of you remember baby Jessica and the well? How many of you have no clue what I'm talking about? Okay. Several years ago, in Texas, there was a, a, a young girl, real young girl, that fell into a well. And as I remember it, it was one of those things that captivated the, the country. People, news stories were about it. And back then, um, you know... You didn't have 24-hour news cycles, and so you had to wait till the evening news and the nightly news to find out what was happening with baby Jessica. And they had all this team of people surrounding her, and they were trying to get her out. And they were I remember that when they finally started to pull her out, to bring her up, that every station turned to her, all four that we had. Right? And they pulled her up, and people were just excited about what was happening. Or a little more recently, remember the Chilean miners? They got stuck, and, and we, were, we were glued to that, wondering about that, figuring it out, and this great effort was made to find them without blasting them away, and there was this rescue that happened. And it's not always some planned thing when we know and it's days on end. Sometimes it's a split-second decision. Uh, I, I thought about uh, Captain Sully that landed the plane on the Hudson River when he realized one of the engines had gone out. Or even some people that we didn't get to Tell them how grateful we are to them. Like the people that stopped the hijackers on the plane that ended up crashing in Pennsylvania and saved countless lives from an unknown target. Don't you love a good rescue? I mean, one of those where the situation seems like we don't know how it's going to end well, and yet it just turns out right. It's why we cheer when a firefighter goes into a burning building and runs back out with a child. It's why we cheer when policemen arrive at a scene that looks like it's desperate and we find out that everything's okay. In those moments when it seems like all is going to be lost, something swoops in, grabs the moment, and rescues the day. Hollywood knows we like that, right? You think about most most movies have some scene in them where it seems like all hope is lost, nothing's going to be good. You get to the lowest moment and then at the last possible moment, something good happens. I, I love watching movies with my children. We watched a movie last night. One of the things I love about watching the movie with my children is um, watching them react to those kind of moments. Because I've lived long enough to know that in a children's animated movie, they're not going to kill the main character, right? Right? If they do, it doesn't turn out well, all right? And so as I'm watching and I know they're going to get out of it and I know the situation, my kids have not learned that lesson yet. 
and to watch as they get tense and as they get, you know, some of you still do that anyways, even though you know the same thing, right? I was watching last night, we were watching a movie and there was a scene where this predator is coming after the character and it's chasing him down and it's getting closer and closer. And Maddie just finally collapses in my lap and says, Daddy, I can't watch. Right. But then at the last moment. The character is saved. Rescued. I laughed about it this summer. We uh, went and watched. Um, Despicable Me Too. How many of you have seen that? Right? Love that movie. Okay? Uh, you can judge me on that if you want to, alright? Um, but there's this funny line where even they recognize how ridiculous it's gotten in Hollywood because they're talking about a character that supposedly died and they say he died in the most macho way possible. Riding a missile strapped to a shark with 250 pounds of TNT plummeting into an exploding volcano. Right? And so at the end of the movie... I'm going to spoil it for you if you haven't seen it. Sorry. The the main characters are strapped to a missile on a shark with 250 pounds of TT going into an erupting volcano. And right when it seems like nothing good could come of it and it's over, guess what? They're rescued. In fact, what often makes a really good movie is the rescue, not the peril. And the deeper the peril and the less likely you are to see what's going to happen, the more impressive the payoff when it comes. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been in this series of messages coming from Ephesians. And we've been answering this question of I am. And what does that mean? What does it mean when you describe yourself and how would you describe yourself? And two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that we've been blessed, that I am blessed, that God has blessed us with certain things. And and last week, we talked about the fact that that God validates us, that he appreciates us. But this week, the reason I brought up all that rescue stuff is because the reason our hearts kind of identify and love great rescue stories is because great rescue stories are at the heart of what God is doing. And what we can say to ourselves in the midst of life, as among other things that we are, is we can fill in that blank with a a staggeringly great statement that I am rescued. And as we're going to see in just a moment, the depth of what we've been rescued from is greater than than anything a Hollywood director or television producer could bring. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. If not, I'll I'll be reading from it and you can just kind of follow along. But I want us to see this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're someone who has given your life to Jesus, if you're following after Him, you're pursuing Him, that you are a follower of Jesus, I want you to see this morning the depth from which you have been taken. In fact, we're going to answer three questions this morning. And the first question we're going to answer is this. What have we been rescued from? What what does it matter that we've been rescued? What does it matter? Well, why is it such a big deal that we've been rescued? Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, and you, and that's us, that's all of us. We were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you previously walked according to the worldly age, According to the ruler of this world, the spirit now working in the disobedient, 
We, too, all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And by nature, we were children under wrath as the others were also. I want to break that down for just a minute because I want us to get a sense of kind of what we're talking about here. And he says in that passage, six things that we have been rescued from. Six important things for us to remember that Christ did in rescuing. And the first thing he says is, you were rescued from the dead. That's kind of big, right? I mean, you're starting big there. What does the word dead mean? Dead, right? Not alive, right? Over in West Tennessee where I grew up, they used to call it, you were dead. Right? Had that deep southern drawl, and it means you weren't coming back. In fact, they had a, a phrase, you were dead as a... What, that doesn't even make any sense. Dead as a doornail. What does that mean, right? just meant you were dead, or graveyard dead. Now, here's the thing. Obviously, he is not telling them that he is talking about physically they were dead. I mean, obviously, right? Have any of you been dead since you were born? Okay? Not, not physically, right? If so, we probably need to have a conversation. I'd like to hear your story, right? None of us have been physically dead since we've been born. So he's not talking about all of you were dead. What he's saying here is not physically, but spiritually. And it's just as important because his idea is that we are completely cut off. We have nothing good in us. There is nothing way that we could solve the issue of being dead. Here's the thing. When you are dead, you cannot stop being dead on your own. Right? I mean, you can't change that direction. And so he says, when you were rescued, or when you were before rescue, you were dead. But not just dead. You were dead in your sins and transgressions. Your trespasses. It means that you were engulfed by sin. That you were engulfed by things that are wrong. He's saying you were dead, but not just that. You were completely in the sphere, in the location of being engulfed by evil. By things that are contrary to what God wants us to be. The the phrase he uses here is actually, there are two words he uses. One is kind of miss the mark, but the other issue is this issue of, of trespassing. Now, what does it mean not to trespass? Get in somebody else's space, somebody else's yard, right? Somebody puts up no trespassing signs means don't come on this land, all right? And the idea here is that God has established some boundaries for us. And as he's established those boundaries, we, before Christ, were people who were dead. But we were dead and continually to go against and across the lines that God has put in place for us. It was just who we were. Dead in our sins. Engulfed in them. And then he he just continues to kind of pile this up. He says, in fact, you were just kind of carried along by the ways of this world. The picture here is like a a fast-moving river that no one can stand up in. That you are no longer in control of what is happening. You are just carried along by the society and the culture and the mood around us. It is like you have jumped into the water and you are just carried away without any chance to recover. 
You ever had one of those moments, maybe playing sports or swimming, when suddenly you realize you are no longer in control? Right? And it is a scary thought. Maybe you're driving a vehicle and something happens and you are no longer in control. You can't do anything about what's about to happen. You are just being carried away by it. This past Thursday night, I got called in in emergency duty for our softball team. And the softball team has done really well without me on it and did not do very well at all with me on it. But there was one particular play where they hit a pop fly. I was playing third base. They hit a pop fly. I looked at the pop fly. I thought, that's mine. Nobody else is going to catch that. So I started to move over to get it. And as I got underneath where I thought the ball would land, I realized it is not landing here. It is going to land behind where I am currently standing. And about 20 years ago, I was pretty good at just backing up. I am not very good at that now, apparently. And there came a moment as I was backing up to catch the fly ball that I realized I am going to fall. And it is not going to be pretty and it is going to hurt. And so my only concentration in that moment was I cannot fall and miss the ball. All right. So I reach up and I catch it. And at that moment, I do not know what happens for the next few seconds. All I know is Friday, I took about, I took more Tylenol than is recommended by your local doctor. I could not get out of bed. I had the front of my neck hurt. How does that happen? Okay. Completely out of control. Nothing I could do about it. And what Scripture says here is that before Christ, we are dead in our sins, being carried without any control wherever the world wants to take us. And then it says, and your master, the one that you serve, is the prince of the air. Which means we are a servant of God's enemy. Now, who's God's enemy? Satan. I mean, this is pretty serious stuff, isn't it? Death, engulfed in sin, carried by the world, serving Satan. That's not what I said. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 says. So any idea that we were just kind of sick a little bit, or it was a, we weren't living right, or I had chosen the wrong path, is not what Scripture describes. It says we were dead engulfed in sin, being carried by the world wherever it wanted to take us, and serving the enemy. Giving in to the fleshly desires at any moment. Controlled, a slave to our flesh. You realize that we were born with a nature towards sin, not towards God. If you'd never believe that, all you have to do to cure that is have a child. Amen? Can I get an amen from parents? All right. I uh, was thinking about this the other day because um, Susan taught on Friday. She substitute teaches some. Friday's my day off. And so I kept the girls. And when they got back from school, they had book fair at the school. And so at book fair at the school, you know, Eli and Luke had gone and bought something and they wanted to buy their sister something. They're very sweet brothers that way. They want to buy their sister something. And so Susan helped them pick out a book that was not $400 and they would enjoy. And it was a princess book 
Barbie princess book with stickers. I mean, that is jackpot for the girls, all right? And so the boys bring it home, and Susan's there, and she says, girls, I've got a surprise for you. She says, look what she got. And Ava, who knows about five words total, yells out, Barbie, all right? She is way too young for that. We are going to have to do consumer shopping intervention soon, all right? So she says that, and she goes and she gets the book, and Maddie sees the book, and they play with it nicely for like 25 seconds. There was one problem. There was one book. And literally, in about two minutes, my one-year-old daughter and my three-year-old daughter are playing tug-of-war with the Barbie book, both yelling, mine. I had just finished looking over some things for this sermon And thought, there is nothing that proves the fleshly nature of man more than that. You see, those outside of Christ, all they think about and care about is serving themselves. He says, you're dead. You're engulfed in sin. You're carried by the world. You're serving the enemy. You are a slave to your flesh, to yourself. And then he says, you're condemned. He says, we were children of wrath. Wrath is not a word we like. In fact, it's a word that the culture in general doesn't like for us to even talk about. I think I've said this, but uh, there's been a bit controversy lately because of the song In Christ Alone, which we sing here some. The hymn-like song the Gettys wrote, In Christ Alone. We sing it here some, but a a major denomination has asked the Gettys, they will put it in their hymnal if they will take up the first that says the wrath of God satisfied. Because they don't want to talk about wrath. But Scripture doesn't shy away from wrath. And it teaches us that outside of Christ, we are under the wrath of God. I uh, was reading this week about a pastor who was interviewed for a national program. And as he was getting set up for the interview, the guy that came out to interview him, who was a reporter, national reporter, said, hey, can I just have a conversation with you before this? And he said, sure. He said, what would you like to talk about? He said, I just got a couple of questions for you. He goes, okay. He goes, this is off the record. It's not going to be on there. It doesn't have anything to do with what we're going to do. He said, let me just ask you a question. He said, okay. He said, How? He said you're a pastor, yes. He goes, what kind of pastor are you? I mean, what do you believe? He said, I, I believe Jesus. I believe the Bible. I believe that God is, Jesus is the only way. To salvation, he says, okay, so here's my question. Do you think I'm going to hell? The pastor was like, that's kind of a bold first question. He says, well, let me ask you a few questions. He says, well, what do you believe about Jesus? He goes, I think he's a good man. He goes, okay, um, do you believe he's the son of God? No, I don't think I do believe that. Do you believe he lived a perfect life? No. Do you think that he paid for your sin, the fact that things that you do, Against God's will on the cross. No. Do you believe he raised again from the dead? No, I don't believe I, I believe that. And the pastor said, well, yeah, then I think you're going to hell. The guy looked a little shocked and the pastor thought, you know, this is the guy that's about to interview me, put me on national TV and edit what I say. He said, but the truth was in that moment, the questions he asked left me no other option but to tell him what scripture says. And when you are outside of Christ, when you don't have a relationship, when you haven't accepted the forgiveness He offers, you are dead, engulfed in sin, carried by the world, serving the enemy, slaves to your flesh, condemned. 
That is much worse than on a missile strapped to a shark with TNT going into an erupting volcano. And verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2 has two of the greatest words ever written. When it gets through with all of that, verse 4 says these two words, but God. That is the moment of rescue. That is the payoff you spend your life looking towards that goes on forever. And so after we figure out what it is we've been rescued from, the next question is, what have we been rescued by? Or who have we been rescued by? And verse 4 and 5 make it very clear. The only answer to the question by is it has been rescued by God. But God, who is abundant in mercy because of His great love that He had for us, made us alive with the Messiah even though we were dead and trespasses. By grace, you are saved. Amen? That is an amazing verse. When you pile up what just came in verses 1 through 3 about who we were to hear, but God did not want it to be that way. He gave and He changed and He came and rescued you. I don't know what you think the greatest gift that you have ever been given is. It's amazing how that changes throughout our life, right? When I was a child, I got the He-Man Castle Grayskull. Anybody remember that? Amen, right? Thought it was the greatest gift I've ever gotten in my life. Till I got to be a teenager and my dad bought me a stereo system that would bust the windows out, right? And today I look back at that stuff and think, well, that was ridiculous. That wasn't good. And I think about my family that God has given me and that her parents said it was okay for her to marry me. My wife, Susan. I think about my four kids that I never imagined having four beautiful kids. And yet all of that pales in comparison to the fact that God has given me Himself. And I didn't even ask for it. I didn't even know I needed it. But He did. But God, in His great mercy, because He loves us, and it tells us in verse 6, this is just amazing. He raised us up with Him. Think about where we've come from. Dead, defeated, in our sin, carried by the world. And He raises us up and seats us in the heavens with Christ. One day, we are going to live in a way that we can't even imagine right now. And the purpose, He said, in all this, He tells us that in verse 8, that by the grace you are saved through faith, it's not of ourselves, it is God's free gift. It is something He has said, here, take. He tells us in verse 7 that He did this so that He might display for the world what His grace, His immeasurable riches in grace looks like. Just an amazing thought of what He's done for us. And before we leave, though, I want to remind us that just as important as it is to ask what we've been rescued from and by, it's also important to ask the question, what have we been rescued for? Why did He do this? It's because of His great love. But there's also this little part there 
It tells us He wants to display us. But verse 9 says that it is God's gift, not from works. I mean, that's really the, the question, right? How do you get rescued? The, the most world religions, in fact, almost every other world religion outside of Christianity says you do it by works. So you do this and this and this, and you don't do this and this and this, and in the end, you'll be all right. But Christianity says, no, that's not the way it is. It is God's grace. It is not works. It is nothing good in us. It is nothing that we have done. It is all because of God and what He has done. So if we are saved not by works, so none of us can boast. None of us can say, I'm a good one. Verse 10. No, we are His masterpiece. His workmanship. We are the thing He wants to display. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. What are we rescued for? We're rescued for good works. We're not rescued by good works. We're rescued for them. And so the response to the understanding of the depth from which God has pulled us in this rescue is to proclaim who He is to those of us around us. One pastor said that in his writing, that we are like people that are trapped in a cave and one of us is small enough, fits the, the crevice just the right way. We can get through and get outside. But the point of getting outside is not just to get free, it is to go get help for those that are still in. And to proclaim that they need to be free. Let me tell you some things about the works that God has prepared for you. First of all, any work done in the grace of God for the glory of God is good work. A mom that wakes up at 3 a.m. to go and comfort a baby that is screaming and crying done in God's grace for God's glory is a good work. Some people have this idea, well, I'm in secular work, you're in the church. No, there's no difference between secular and church work. It's all to God's glory if you're doing what God has called you to do. God needs great pastors, God needs great music leaders, but He also needs great accountants and great construction guys. He needs great housewives and teachers, lawyers. He needs people doing what you're doing, doing it for the glory of God and under His grace. In fact, think about this. How old was Jesus when he died? Anybody know? 33. How old was Jesus when he began to preach his ministry? He was 30. So what did Jesus do for the first 30 years of his life? He was a carpenter. Okay? Now, he wasn't a carpenter when he was two, but you know. When he was 12 or so, he probably started helping his dad pretty regularly as a carpenter. And so for 18 years of his life, Jesus was a carpenter. And that work was just as glorifying to God because it was done under the grace of God for the glory of God as when he started preaching. If he had been faithful there, he couldn't have been faithful later. So what, God, what has God called you to do? What has God called you to do under his grace for his glory? We have been rescued from a place that none of us could get out of in a place more dire and desperate than anybody can imagine by the love and the mercy and the grace of God for the purpose of sharing it with other people. So the question is, have you been faithful? Are you doing the works that God has prepared for you to do? Let's pray together.